listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to marine biologist Helen Scales. Understanding that what we do at the very deepest parts of the ocean will have an impact on what happens out here on land and for the lives that we and every other living thing on this planet leads. I think that is the challenge. Helen shared her insights into the vital role the oceans play in sustaining life on Earth, the innovative new technologies humans are using to explore the seabed, and how a rich diversity of deep-sea creatures might hold the key to new scientific advances. One of the most important ecosystems on our planet is one we know least about. Our deep oceans are a mysterious, almost alien environment. Completely inhospitable to humans, but utterly integral to our survival. It's often said that more is known about the surface of the moon than our own seas. But increasingly, with the development of new robotic tools and technologies, we're learning more and more about the vast array of strange giants and mysterious creatures that make the ocean home. In her new book, The Brilliant Abyss, Helen Scales challenges us to rethink our relationship with this most vital part of our planet and consider how human activity might be threatening our ability to truly benefit from the wonders of our oceans. So Helen, why do you find the deep ocean so wildly fascinating? Well, I think it has to be something to do with the fact that it is so big and therefore, I mean, it's so very, very big. Uh, and we can come to kind of try and how we wrap our heads around that perhaps in a minute. But because it's so vast and because it is so varied, it's not just this big empty space. It's full of life, but life that we just don't even know the, like, I want to say the half of, but you're not even the tenth of. You know, if we want to understand life on Earth. We have to look to the oceans. It's the biggest living space on the planet. 90% of the uh, the available kind of volume in which organisms can occupy is the deep ocean. And when we look there, we just find creatures that live in such ways that it blows our minds, uh, just simply that they can survive in permanent dark, ridiculously high pressures, everything else that the deep brings. And they, they they just bring this ridiculously varied and wondrous variety of life that I just don't think we get on land as well. So you're right, it is like an alien space, but it is here. It's Earth. It's what we've got on our planet. It's just constantly surprising, I think, once you get down there and start looking. In a, in a funny sort of way, the sea has always been seen as this weird obstacle. It's something to overcome. We either fly over it or we travel over it to get to more land. And there seems to be so much of it. And often and historically, that vast body of water has been seen as frustrating. But can you give us an idea of just how large and, and I guess deep the sea really is? I really like that way you describe it as being an obstacle. You're absolutely right. I mean, how many of us have sat in an aeroplane and looked out of the window, flown across the Atlantic, say, going to America and just been like, uh-huh. yep, still ocean. Like three hours later, still ocean. I, mean, I remember flying over the Pacific. I mean, that is the biggest ocean. So, you know, of course, it's absolutely enormous. And even that, you're only seeing, well, I'm only seeing the surface. That's for the starters. I mean, so the oceans cover seven tenths mm. of the surface of the planet. That in itself is already pretty astonishing. But then, you know, go down and you know the average depth of the ocean is four kilometers, and it goes much deeper than that. So um, in the book, actually, one thing I did just to try and visualize in our minds how deep and how big the oceans are was uh, I asked a physicist friend of mine who knew how to do these calculations. And I said, OK, well, look, if I take a glass marble, like a normal little glass marble that perhaps if you were in olden times, you would have played in the school playground with. And if I just if we sailed off to a part of the deepest part of the oceans and we dropped it over the side of the boat, how long would it take to get down to the bottom? And it would basically pass through all these different layers that we see very different types of life, depending on how much light gets down there. So you've got the sunlit zone at the top, which is where sunlight still reaches, about half, I think it's no, six or seven minutes it takes to fall through that sunny bit to around 200 metres. And it keeps on going into the the twilight zone where there's the sunlight's just running out. There's not enough sun for photosynthesis. Takes another kind of, I don't know, it's about an hour to get through there. Goes into the midnight zone below a thousand meters where there's no light at all. Keeps on going, keeps on going. And then to get to the very, very deepest part. So down into these ocean trenches. So you might have heard of the Mariana trenches, the deepest of them. There's a whole bunch of trenches that are deeper than 10,000 meters. And the Mariana goes down to just just shy of 11,000 meters. And it would take something like six and a half hours to go from the top to the bottom, which is just bonkers, really. I mean, it's a very, very long way to the bottom of the ocean. 
<laughs> and then the volume. I mean, can multiply that up basically. The sort of the uh, the area of uh, times the depth, and you've just got a massive, enormous volume of of water in the deep. Well, that vastness is the thing that makes it so difficult to understand. And as I alluded to in the introduction there, it's, it's often said that more is known about the surface of the moon than our deep oceans. But in actual fact, that's, a, that's an unfair comparison, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I think... In a way, you know, it's a bit oranges and apples or is it oranges and pears? I can't remember what you're not supposed to compare. But I guess and it comes back to this idea, perhaps, of the water obstructing or getting in the way of us, the oceans, because, you know, that's why it's hard to know what's in the sea, because all the water's in the way. So we know more about the surface of the moon because we can just look at it. OK, we need a telescope. Mm. But, you know, even a sort of simple telescope, you can get a pretty good idea of what the near side of the moon looks like. The other side's a bit harder, fair enough. But we can't do that with the ocean. We can't simply look at it, we have to find other ways of understanding what's there and discovering just even the physical shape of the deep ocean, the deep seabed. So that I think in one way, but also there's a size factor. I mean, you could peel off the surface of the moon and lay it out in the deep ocean and it would be about 10 times the size. I mean, it's it's so much bigger. The bottom of the sea, the seabed is so much bigger than the surface of the moon. And then, you know, then we've got all the volume of water above it. And I think for me, actually, the thing that really nails it is the fact that, well, nothing lives on the moon. <laughs> There's nothing particularly, yeah. in my mind as a biologist, especially, oh, I'm going to upset the geologist, but especially interesting <laughs> about the moon. <laughs> what you about know, the rocks, Helen? The rocks. <laughs> nothing lives there. You know, as far as we know, nothing <laughs> has ever lived on the moon, whereas so much lives in the ocean. There's so much more to find. So, of course, we don't know as much about the deep ocean as we do about the, the moon. I mean, that's just, it's, yeah, of course we don't. We've established how massive and, and amorphous the sea is, but also the deep sea is so critically and, and massively important to sustaining life here on Earth. So what is the relationship between the activity above the waves and beneath the waves? So it's this idea of the massive volume of the oceans, which is a key to all of this. And, and combined with the fact that water has a very high heat capacity. So I think this is a very key thing in terms of the, the functioning of our planet, in terms of keeping it habitable for us creatures out on land who really prefer it not to be too hot or not too cold. So because the oceans, because water absorbs absorbs heat, it's really distributing heat from the sun around the planet. So if it wasn't for the oceans, basically the equator would be getting hotter and hotter and hotter the whole time and the poles would be getting colder and colder. But because we've got this enormous volume of water that's constantly moving around, we've got these great deep currents like huge rivers flowing through the deep ocean. It's distributing this heat that's pouring down from our from the sun. So heat at the equator is um, is basically travelling away from that, helped by the spinning of the planet and various other forces too. And ultimately, there's this sort of this circulation around the oceans, which is drawing heat away from the equator and distributing it along with nutrients, along with oxygen. Everything that creatures in the ocean need also comes from that water circulation, the oxygen, the food. And that is the basis of so much of life on Earth as well. So we've got this sort of whole life support system going on simply by you know the very simple fact of the oceans and the water moving that heat around then we can add on top of that things like carbon the oceans are an enormous store of carbon dioxide and that combined with the heat means that if it wasn't for this vast volume of water we have, most of it which is in the deep ocean, um, we'd already be facing a ridiculously catastrophic version of climate change. Something like 90% of the heat, the excess heat that's a result of um, anthropogenic carbon release and the greenhouse effect, 90% of that heat has ended up in the deep sea, in the oceans. So, And if we didn't have that, I think surface temperatures are modelled, it's thought they would be something like 30 degrees warmer than we are today. So, you know, it's just unbearable to think about what the planet would be like without the oceans. So, you know, so there's all of that stuff. And then, you know, I could throw into the mix the idea that actually life probably began in the deep ocean. We don't know for sure, but there are theories that this is where life on Earth began. And if it's and if ours is the only inhabited planet in yeah. the universe, we don't know yet. But if it is, then this is basically how life full stop began. So it's, it's pretty useful and pretty important <laughs> part of life on Earth, you know, that it began in the deep potentially and in the huge volume of the ocean moving around makes everything possible on the rest of the planet too. 
Well, any um, British listeners would have seen the Guinness beer ad and would know that that is indeed true, Helen. <laughs> the idea that uh, Earth began in the, the, the seas and ends in the in the pubs of England. And, I mean, would, would you go as far as saying the fact that the Earth has oceans is what makes it so special as a planet, especially in this solar system? I would say so. I mean, I'm no space scientist, so I can't definitively talk about what's going on in the rest of a galaxy or anywhere else. But certainly from my perspective, I think the oceans make things considerably more interesting on this planet and potentially on others too. You know, I am really fascinated at the idea that there could be life on other planets. I just, you know, we haven't yet found it. But it is those water-containing planets where it's most likely, I think. You know, those are the places where we're looking to potentially for other life forms. I mean, and that's sort of based on the the idea that it would be something similar to the life forms that have formed here on Earth. But why not? It's a good place to start looking. So yeah, I mean, I guess it's the possibilities of life in water. And certainly, I guess that's what draws me again to the deep ocean on this planet is that it's it sets up a whole set of interesting conditions that uh, living creatures have to adapt to. And the responses to those conditions of the fact there's not much sunlight, there's not much food, the pressure is incredibly high, it's pretty cold, there's not a lot of, you know, that life in many parts of the deep isn't exactly dense. I wouldn't say there's a huge, always a huge biomass, sort of abundance of life in a particular places. I mean, it's it can be very diverse, but it isn't always enormously abundant. So finding food and mates and so on can be quite tricky. But the responses to those restraints, if you like, and the ways that evolution has kind of solved the problems, if you like, of living in the ocean has come up with all these incredible solutions. For me, that's why I think we need to look to the oceans to really understand life on Earth, because it is so big and there's so much diversity from strange jelly creatures that swim through the open dark waters of the midnight zone, throwing light bombs at each other, yeah. to the fact that sperm whales and other mammals can dive down into these enormous steps and somehow survive down there and go hunting after giant squid and all sorts of things like that just shows us more about the possibilities of life, I think, than we're ever going to learn if all we did was look at life out on land. Well, you might not be a space scientist, but it does feel like you're an expert on aliens because everything we seem to find underwater looks so alien. <laughs> so what is the weirdest thing about the sorts of life that does live in the deep abyss? Oh, there's so much weird stuff. I mean, where to start really? But um, I guess, I mean, some of the stuff that I find the most surprising is some things that just seem almost counterintuitive. So, I mean, I've mentioned that we get a lot of creatures that you might call jellyfish. I mean, they're actually a whole bunch of different organisms from different parts of the animal family tree, but we could sort of generically call them the jellyfish, sort of wobbling around in so many different shapes and forms. I mean, you've got things like siphonophores, which are these colonial organisms that grow to, as we know, at least sort of 50 metres long, these great big long sort of animal combination of different animals living together. But you might imagine that sort of a jelly-based delicate life form is almost the opposite of what you would expect to find under these crushing pressures. I mean, by the time we get down to sort of 4,000 metres down to the abyssal depths of the ocean, we're talking about pressures that are hundreds of times higher than inside a car tyre. It's like having a, an, an elephant stepping on every square inch of your body. So why delicate creatures? Surely what we would see would be sort of tough things that can withstand mm -hmm. pressure, you know, made out of bricks or something. I don't know. But um, what we see are these incredibly, what look to be sort of these ephemeral creatures that you could sort of waft your hand past and they would fall apart, which to some extent is true. But uh, I mean... <sighs> I think it's the response to pressure that we wouldn't necessarily expect, which is, you know, you actually don't want hard parts and being made of jelly is actually a very, which is basically gelatin, a sort of a very thin solution of the, of the protein collagen. And that makes a quite a cheap way of constructing a body. And that, and, sort of being very efficient is quite important for life in the deep ocean because as I've mentioned, there's not much food down there. So you don't want to have bodies that require massive amounts of food to be able to race around and, and keep yourself alive. But if you can just sort of float gently along and not require too much energy, it's actually quite an effective way to be successful in the deep. And so we do see not only jellyfish sort of life forms wobbling around, but lots of other organisms kind of go towards that. So we see things like fish that are much more kind of jelly based than they would be up in the shallows and they're sort of replacing parts of their anatomy just with 
yeah, kind of bags of of jelly. And that means they can float. They don't sink too quickly. That saves energy. And it's not a very sort of energy hungry type of tissue to produce. We also see kind of swimming worms, sort of the ancestors of the worms would have been crawling along the bottom of the seabed, but some of them upped into the water column and took off and swam off. And a lot of them have evolved really weird sort of jelly-based bodies as well. So so I guess, yeah, part of it is like the unexpected, but then actually you look again, you think actually it does make kind of make sense when you see those things living in the deep. I should also mention one of the big surprises that was discovered in the deep ocean. It was about 40 years ago when hydrothermal vents were first discovered. And these are these deep, hot springs you find at cracks in the seabed at the edges of tectonic plates. Initially, it was just geologists who were interested in these things and went down in a submersible to go look at them and were completely blown away when they found that they were covered in life, like a real oasis of life on hmm. these things. These They're sometimes called black smokers, these big tall chimneys that form from these um, mineral-rich fluids that come up through the seabed. And sort of it took a couple of years to work it out. But what they had found was a completely alternative form of life on Earth. Nothing on land had come anywhere near to this strange ecosystem that lives in the dark, completely cut off from sunlight. And because up until then, it was thought that life on Earth basically needs energy from the sun. That was how biology works. As far as we knew up until the late 70s, it was energy from the sun that comes down, powers photosynthesis, these plants and, and seaweeds and algaes and things that can grab CO2 from the air and use the energy from the sun to make carbohydrates and food for everything else. And that was it, basically. That's the basis of life on Earth. And then these geologists are like, but hey, guys, there's life down here. Yeah. How on earth is this all surviving? And it turns out that there is another way to live. Uh, there's another way to get energy. And this is this dark alternative to photosynthesis called chemosynthesis. And it's a very similar process of basically fixing carbon dioxide, but doing so with chemical energy rather than energy from the sun. And it kind of opened up this whole new view of what life could be. Again, it was this sort of a complete sort of mind shift in terms of understanding the possibilities of life. And I think, again, that takes us sort of to imagine what else might be happening elsewhere in the universe. Because if we already have two very different ways of living here on Earth, maybe those also have happened elsewhere. Or maybe there's even other options for providing this source of energy, which is it kind of underpins living cells and living organisms. You've got to have some source of energy. So that, yeah, I love that about the deep ocean. It's just like, hey, <laughs> did you realize that we were hiding down here all this time and no one knew about it? And now it's still, you know, we're still learning so much about these vents and what lives there and, and how it's all possible. Well, there we go. It's, it's life, Helen, but not as we know it. What can we actually learn from these sorts of extremophiles that we can apply back to life here on Earth? On discovering that we have this multitude of life that lives deep under our seas that doesn't require sunlight, can we then apply the way in which they live to some of the things that we're developing here on Earth? Yeah, I mean, that's one of those big things that we're always asked um, when we're finding out new things about life on Earth. It's sort of, mm -hmm. oh, you know, well, uh, can we, are they doing, are these organisms doing something that could be useful for humanity or are they producing something that we yeah. could find? And, and I mean, that very much applies to the deep ocean. I think partly because it is so big and we're learning so much and there's so much novelty down in the deep that we are kind of just stumbling across all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff that just hasn't come up elsewhere. So, I mean, one example is the search for novel chemistry that could be useful in, for example, medicines. You know, I'm sure you're aware of things like the problem of rising antibiotic resistance and the fact that we only have a kind of a limited supply of different types of antibiotics at the moment and that we're using them to such an extent that they, they are kind of creating these resistant strains of some pathogenic bacteria. So we really need more ways of kind of defending ourselves against uh, against microbial attack. And the deep ocean is a wonderful place to find those things. I mean, again, it kind of comes back to this weird set of conditions down there, the high pressure, the lack of food. And it means that not only are the organisms that live there weird and strange and different to anything on land, they're very chemistry is as well. We're finding big, strange, toxic, powerful molecules amongst things like corals that live down in the deep ocean. You think of corals only living on coral reefs, but actually they live almost all the way to the bottom, down to at least 8,000 metres. They don't have the algae in them that uh, corals in the shallows do. So, so they're kind of solar powered, the ones that build tropical reefs, but the ones in the deep are, are hunters and they sift their food from the water. 
But they also produce incredible chemicals, probably for defense. Again, one thing you need to be able to do if you're going to survive in the deep is not get eaten by something else because it's a lot of hungry mouths to feed. So these corals and also sponges, these other weird but simple creatures produce incredible chemistry. And, and scientists are going and finding just a whole kind of treasure trove of interesting and toxic. And what we do, we do want toxic chemicals, ones that are sort of toxic against bacteria and other pathogens, but in very specific ways and new kind of pathways towards, say, killing. We're already finding molecules that are effective against things like MRSA, one of those superbugs, which are proving particularly tricky to treat in hospital situations. And, and potentially, I mean, it's going to take a while to come through, but you know, we are finding great new inspirations along those lines in the deep ocean. We're also finding kind of really cool sort of engineering solutions too, and sort of inspirations of, of, again, kind of ways that organisms have evolved, ways to solve the challenges of living down in the deep. And um, one of my favourites, actually, is the scalyfoot snail. Very strange <laughs> occupant of hydrothermal vents. They, they live in the Indian Ocean in the vents that are found down there. And these are snails that build their shells out of iron. Now, no other organism we know of has an iron-based exoskeleton or internal skeleton. Wolverine, I don't know if, you know, that wasn't iron, was it? That was... Um, uh, adamantium or some other kind of metal, <laughs> but no iron-based uh, life forms apart from these weird snails. And they also have their foot, the sort of squashy bit of a snail. Theirs is covered in what looks like a sort of almost like a armour, sort of body armour, these plates, these hard scaly plates on their feet. And it turns out when they were first discovered, people thought those scales perhaps were protecting them from some kind of form of attack. And that would make sense, you know, as I say, but you want to try and not be eaten when you're in the deep ocean. But actually what, on closer inspection, it turns out that those scales are defending the snails from a poison that comes from within. So these chemosynthetic, um, basically it's microbes that are providing this energy on the hydrothermal vents, this chemosynthetic energy. It's, it's bacteria and other microbes that can produce carbohydrates, can produce food from these chemicals things like hydrogen sulfide and, and methane. And these snails have these microbes living inside them. So it's like a symbiotic relationship, a bit like corals with algae, tiny algae living inside them up in the shallows. These snails have microbes in a big pouch in there, inside them. Basically, they farm in interior. They have this sort of interior cultured bacteria, which um, give them their food. The problem with all of this is that uh, as well as food, these bacteria produce uh, sulfur, elemental sulfur, which is toxic to snails. It's a byproduct of this chemosynthetic process. But the solution to all of this is the structure of these weird scales on their feet. And uh, they've got these nanoscopic tubes inside them. And, and it's, we've basically figured out that that acts like these act like millions or thousands, like thousands of tiny exhaust pipes on a car, and it draws the sulfur away from the snail's body. And then sulfur reacts with iron in the water, dissolved in the water, and forms these metal compounds, which is why you end up with a shiny black snail. And they're so they're saving themselves from this sort of chemical attack from within so they can live happily with these microbes inside them that they're providing them with food, but without poisoning themselves. And then circling it back around to why this is useful for us, apparently, I mean, I'm no engineer, but apparently making nanoparticles of metallic compounds is very useful, but also very difficult and expensive. And the only um, engineering processes at the moment to do that are really hot and very kind of complex, basically. And here is an animal that does it at pretty, actually fairly normal temperatures. These snails live in water that's about 10 degrees and they just, they figured out how to do it because it's nanoparticles of metals that are produced on the surface of these these snail, snaily feet. So, I mean, one day perhaps, I think we're a long way off that, but it's just this idea that maybe even these engineering processes could be could be inspired to do something completely different and maybe much better by looking at sort of the way that these these snails are constructing their shells and their scaly feet miles down beneath the waves on hydrothermal vents. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does make you think, what are all these weird chemical producing creatures actually doing down there? It does feel like the, the deep sea is this massive recycling plant where deep sea creatures just feed off all these remains of dead sea dwellers. Uh, is that their purpose? Oh, what's, what is the purpose? 
purpose of life? I mean, that's a big question, surely. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. If- well, let's start with the purpose of sea life and then, then we, we well, can work to the bigger questions yeah, later. I mean, I don't know if anything has a purpose, really. I mean, it all, I would say um, <laughs> life started possibly on hydrothermal vents. That's one strong theory contender mm-hmm. for the beginnings of the origins of first living cells that could reproduce themselves and make more of themselves and essentially kind of embody this idea of, of life as we know it. And then it sort of took off from there. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I mean, even just the idea of why does life in the ocean, why does it go and inhabit every piece of the open water, every corner of the seabed, every strange and different place has been occupied by life and something has found a way, whether it's a worm that has learned how or has evolved to eat the bones of yeah, dead whales that fall down from the surface and occasionally end up down there. And there are organisms that entirely live on 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 dead bones. Whether it's an octopus, the vampire squid, it's not an octopus, the vampire squid, which um, looks pretty terrifying, but sits there in the midwater and just gently collects what we call marine snow, these particles of dead stuff that um, fall down from the surface, which is the main source of food in the deep ocean, aside from these chemosynthetic microbes that are powering things like hydrothermal vents, pretty much the only other food that's coming in is this basically sort of dead plankton and and their poo raining down from above. Sounds pretty nasty. We call it marine snow, so it does, you know, puts a slightly nice. Sounds, it is, much sounds better. better. Yeah. But this, uh, this, these vampire squids sit there and they basically just gently collect snow and then they pack them into snowballs and put, put them into their mouth. And that's where they get their food. So why have they done that? I don't know. They just did. <laughs> Life just does. Yeah. But I guess, I mean, you're sort of asking about the, the bigger picture of how it all fits together. And I, I guess that's what is so beautiful and elegant about the deep ocean because life is extreme and it is a challenge to survive when, you know, there's not a huge abundance of food and of energy down there. That it's sort of if evolution has taken life in the deep down those pathways to survive, but in such a way that it's incredibly efficient, nothing goes to waste, which is why I think you get such specialisms. You get worms that just eat bones because, you know, if you're good at mm. eating bones and you're good at finding bones, then you can survive as a, as a species. So that works. I guess it's as long as things work, they will survive. And by work, I mean, you know, find your energy, find a mate, make more of yourself and keep going. And that's a successful species. And I guess there's just this elegance of efficiency in the deep, which I like so much. You know, there's th- organisms have found ways to survive, whether it's a snail with these microbes growing in inside them or other things on vents that have got various other ways of keeping these chemosynthetic creatures happy, whether it's a vampire squid gently collecting snow. They've all found their place within these ecosystems so that the whole things work. And we're still only just starting to understand how those ecosystems work and and what all those links are. For example, if we look at these jelly creatures that live up all the way through the water column, these things that most of them make light, bioluminescence is this incredibly common thing in the deep ocean, which I also find just wonderful. Yeah. It makes sense in a world where there's no sunlight that if you can make your own light, that's again going to really give you an advantage for surviving, finding mates, finding food. So it happens a lot. But what we didn't know up until fairly recently was just how important those jelly creatures are within the ecosystem. It was generally thought that they were just these bags of jelly that kind of wobble around and they feed perhaps on marine snow and and that's about it. It's not particularly important in terms of the whole ecosystem. But actually when scientists found ways of looking more carefully at that whole food web, they found that these jellyfish and their relatives and various other creatures that look really delicate and kind of flimsy are actually really amazing predators. They will go out and catch fish, they'll go out and catch squid and actually a whole bunch of things do eat the jellyfish as well. So they're really integral to this food chain. They're very important for the cycling of energy through the ecosystem of nutrients to such a point that we you know we just hadn't seen that before because it actually took a lot of time in the water simply just looking at these creatures we now have these amazing technologies as you mentioned at the beginning like deep diving submersibles with cameras and because scientists are going and they're taking hours and hours and hours of footage it, it means they can build up this picture of what's actually happening in the deep. And they catch images of a jellyfish eating a squid or a squid catching a jellyfish one way or the other, or, you know, and round and round it goes. And we get this picture building up from this enormous archive of the deep of just what's happening down there. And I guess I love that as well. I love that it's a, it's a, like a glimpse 
into this hidden world of which we're still just kind of understanding more about how it all fits together and how life can find a way to survive and thrive um, in this vast, challenging realm of the deep ocean. It does feel like the sea is this massive biomass waste processing, recycling system. It's utterly fascinating that it's able to process that much biomass because, as you said, there's these giant creatures in the sea too. And if it wasn't for these these tiny jellyfish and all of these weird creatures in the deep ocean being able to eat bone or process blubber, you'd just have a mass graveyard of these huge whales. And I've never quite understood that piece. Why and how can such giant creatures also exist under the sea. So this, the body size thing is really interesting, actually. And I think there's studies coming out to show that this is, it's, you know, it's happened a lot in many different sort of at times in the past when there's been this kind of gigantism, whether it's in fish, mm. like you've got, you know, giant whale sharks and basking sharks at the moment, or you've got, there was a whole era when there were giant reptiles swimming through the oceans of, you know, plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs of sea monster type things, the dinosaurs cousins who were swimming around at that time. It's a hundred million years ago or so. And giant whales as well, they've taken that body size thing to a, a real extreme. And I think there's a bit of a trade-off really between body size and your ability to gather food. So kind of getting down to kind of the energetics of how an organism survives. Because I mean, one of those weird things about some of these big animals, certainly the sharks, is that they eat very tiny food. They they aren't big predators. You know, the whale sharks, basking sharks, mm. mega mouth sharks, which are all the big ones, they eat no little tiny plankton and little tiny fish and things. And I think that's an energy trade-off sort of between rushing around trying to catch things that are, are a bit more active and bigger food versus just sort of ploughing on, like kind of mowing the sea, basically, opening a big wide mouth <laughs> and just kind of ploughing through it. Same with some some of the bigger whales. I mean, the blue whale, the biggest animal that has ever evolved, basically swims around with its mouth open, eating little things, tiny, tiny things. But as long as you eat enough of them, you can. I mean, I think those sort of filter feeders are generally more common in the shallower seas because there is more plankton and stuff around to eat. So I think being a filter feeder deeper down becomes more challenging. It's not impossible. I mean, in the deep, you get sort of two things happening. You either get some stuff that grows um, organisms that evolve to be much smaller than they would in the shallows, or you get some that are much bigger. So you get gigantism and you get kind of dwarfism as well. So it's sort of there's two different evolutionary pressures taking you in different energetic ways. You know, be small so you need less energy or be big and have big reserves in your body. So there are amazing things like giant isopods. Now, these are relatives of, of wood lice that would you'd find in your garden or under a, a plant pot or in the, in the local park. Then you're the ones that roll up into a little ball if, you, if they get scared. Their cousins in the oceans are isopods. Uh, type of crustacean, uh, relatives of crabs and lobsters. And the ones in the deep ocean are massive. They're the size of rugby balls. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the reason that they are very big is that they, they're basically just fat. It's like having a camel's hump. It's where they lay down these energy reserves, these fat reserves, and they can eat just once every four years or so. Certainly that's what we've seen in aquariums. Some of these have been taken up and kept in captivity and they've been completely not interested in food uh, for like four years in a row. Like they're offered food and they're like, no, I'm good. I'm still eating my uh, my fat reserve. Thank you very much. So, you know, that's how they survive. So they're scavenging on things like carcasses coming down from above. And they found they've evolved a way in which they only need, you know, one dead whale every four years and they're, they're good or, you know, dead fish and other things too. So I guess there's sort of this divergence of strategies in the deep ocean and, and being big does sometimes work and being small sometimes works as well. Well, it's that diversity that means that the sea has survived so many things. It's been resilient almost to many global extinctions. And I just wonder what can we learn from a system like that when it comes to uh, being able to survive these extreme events that plague a planet? It's a really good point, actually. And I think that's Something, and again, I'm re really fascinated in is this the history of life in the oceans. And as you say, it's been through these cataclysmic changes, you know, at least five times in the geological past. And then possibly now the sixth mass extinction we're mm. underway with uh, humanity right now. But I mean, let's take the most extreme one, which was at the end of the Permian era, 252 million years ago. It's been dubbed the Great Dying. It was this 
we think probably triggered by massive volcanic activity. And there was this enormous pulse of carbon into the atmosphere, which led to this incredible cascade of impacts that were felt on land, but you know, catastrophically in the oceans. 96% mm. of life in the oceans was, was killed off at that point. You know, it was almost back to nothing, but it, but it wasn't. And this was, I guess that's the Maybe that is a lesson. I d- I'm not quite sure how it transfers to what we're doing to the planet now because things are different now. But at least I think we can see that the oceans do have an extraordinary resilience as a whole in terms of the life that occupies it. And even if you pretty much almost just wipe it clean, it will come back and things will re-evolve. And, and it's been these big mass extinctions uh, through the kind of the, the, um, the pacing of life in the oceans that we see these big changeovers and we see sort of the dominance of one group of animals being kind of wiped clean and then another one steps up. I mean, we've seen sort of the changes between times when, for example, sharks were very abundant, they were very dominant parts of ocean ecosystems. And then there were mass extinctions that sort of hit them pretty hard, making way for the bony fish, the ones that are, these days are incredibly diverse and the kind of the the kings, the the emperors of the ocean really are, are bony fish at the moment. Everything apart from those bendy boned cartilaginous sharks, the bony fish are, are the ones that are just incredibly diverse right now. But that probably was because of this sort of previous sort of wiping out of the sharks that were kind of occupying those ecosystems and, and playing a really dominant role before. So it's an integral part of the way the oceans have been structured over, you know, over millions, hundreds of millions of years. And I, you know, I do find that fascinating. I'm kind of sad in a way because I would love to know what it would be like to swim alongside a Dunkleosteus, these ridiculously big, scary monster fish things that lived in the Devonian era with these huge, huge bony heads. You know, they've all gone, but they were one of the earliest forms of fish that we had. I'd love to see one of those <laughs> swimming around. But, uh, you know, that's all for, for the past, you know, and ichthyosaurs, those sorts of, wouldn't it just be amazing to be able to see what they were like? But we've also, obviously, we've got amazing things to, uh, to to see and experience in the oceans today. But it does bend my brain a bit to think about what used to be there and what we've what's gone and what's what the oceans used to be like in different different eras gone by. I'm, I'm not sure, Helen, if you would survive a swim with <laughs> one of those. They sound uh, they sound slightly <laughs> dangerous, and they sound like these monsters. In fact, and and the sea has always been associated with monsters, demons, deities. Some of these stories come from the fact that we had very uh, limited understanding of the sea in the early days. Oh yes, I think almost certainly yes. I mean. You know, the oceans in general, and especially the deepest bits that, you know, for only recently we've been able to look at, and we're still only just scratching the surface. That's not the right analogy, but we're only just starting to learn what's in the deep. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's the out of sight and out of mind stuff that just really fires people's imaginations. And what better place to stash the the worst and the greatest and the most terrifying monsters than down in the deep ocean? Because it can hide everything we imagine and up they can pop. And, and then you've got, you know, your sort of homesick sailors who might catch glimpses of a tentacle here or, a, you know, a, a tail fluke there and come back with great stories to, to remind us that, yes, these things must be absolutely real. But, you know, I just caught a glimpse and down it went into the depths. I mean, it's just, it's perfect place for, for cultivating the monsters of our imagination. And I love that, actually. I do love that this is sort of this breeding ground for extraordinary beasts that people have come up with basically forever, you know, for as long as there have been storytellers, people have been wondering what there is out of sight. And I love that there's still that possibility for more, you know, even with all the technologies we have and the the view that we now have to our entire planet, including to the very deepest depths, we're still being amazed by what we're finding. And I don't think we're going to run out anytime soon of monsters to keep keep discovering real ones. Yeah. <laughs> and some of those early sailors, they were uh, they were very drunk on rum. So I guess yes. uh, any old tentacle <laughs> can, uh, can come up with a good exactly. story. But, but someone who can't be drunk on rum when they're out at sea are scientific researchers such as, such as yourself. And you now today have a, have a multitude of new tools and new technologies to explore the ocean. It's almost like a, there's a new golden age of sea exploration, and that's largely being driven by autonomous underwater vehicles and new submarines. So Helen, what is your experience of some of these tools 
and technologies and how have they helped you understand more about our oceans? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that we are in this extraordinary phase of research in the deep ocean. It's come out really in the last decade or so with tools that allow us to see into the deep and transport ourselves remotely into the deep. It's tools that have come from things that like the oil and gas industry, offshore drilling has produced things like these remote operated vehicles, ROVs, which basically just sort of deep diving robots with, with great cameras and manipulator arms that you can send down and have this real time view. And that offers a really powerful insight into what's down in the deep. And I've been on um, research boats and had the experience of being this sort of remote explorer, if you like. You know, we aren't all going down there ourselves. There are some submersibles that take people and those are fantastic, but, you know, it's a bit like going into space. There's only a tiny number of astronauts who actually get to go into space, but loads more space mm. scientists who are studying this place from afar. And I'd say the exact same thing applies to the deep ocean. Most of us stay on ship and just sort of imagine that thousands of metres beneath our feet, there's this robot roaming around and it's seeing for us and it's being our eyes and our arms and uh, allowing us to not only just to look, I think... One thing that really is exciting about deep ocean science is it's not just about exploration and just looking and going, oh, here's something new we haven't seen before, but it's actually taking science down there and doing experiments and working out those connections in food webs, figuring out how all of this works and why it all matters. And it's these sorts of technologies. And I think increasingly it's going to be um, automated. We're going to increasingly see untethered devices. We already have a really fantastic array of basically little submersibles and different devices that you set free into the ocean and they all do everything from measuring the temperature. We've got these incredible <laughs> fleets of of autonomous sampling devices, which are keeping an eye on the ocean's temperature all the way down through the depths, which is vital for our monitoring of climate change and how heat is being sucked down into the oceans and what's happening there. So the monitoring of, of our oceans, the monitoring of, of what's happening geologically and biologically down there, you know, we're just going to get more and more and a sort of a more intricate view, I think, of, of what's down there through all of these incredible new tech devices, you know, sonar devices, which are letting us see what we couldn't see before. No, there's still more to come. I'm still excited about the, very excited about the future of that deep sea technology. I mean, if I had my time again as a researcher, I, I know I'd definitely go and study deep sea robotics and that's where I would be. I mean, I don't know if I'd be any good at it. I'm not sure I'm really good at engineering. I'm just the, the biologist who likes to study the soft, squashy things. But I mean, that's such an exciting area of, of, of research and development to sort of figuring out what the future eyes and tools will be in the deep ocean and combining that with things like the um, genetic tools. I I mean, wouldn't it be fab? I think it'd be so mm. fabulous if we could combine things like, you know, we can now take samples of seawater and sift out bits of fragments of DNA and work out what species were recently swimming in that part of the ocean. And I just, I kind of imagine there could be this incredible, you know, automated sub that would swim around on its own. You'd program it perhaps to go off and spend some, you know, a year or so roaming around the ocean and it would come back or perhaps intermittently transmit its data back to you. And it's already been sampling the DNA and then sequencing it on board and figuring out what species. And it just sends you a message and says, oh, I saw, you know, three giant squid. I saw this thing that we've <laughs> never seen before. And I just think there is, there's a lot of, there's still a lot we're going to be able to do to really push these technologies to understand what's in the ocean and how, how all of this works. And that I think is just so exciting. And, and surely some of those future robots, they're, they're going to be designed and based on some of the biological life that we actually find in the deep. If, if that life is so good at surviving in these extreme uh, conditions, then surely we should use them to help us design maybe biological robots to help us explore the deep. Oh, yes, definitely. I think there's a few ideas already being tried out in that, in that way. Some of them coming back to this idea of a kind of jelly-based life forms, which are so efficient and so mm. effective down in the deep ocean. I think that sort of the soft robotics aspect could become really interesting down in the deep ocean. I think some people have already started trying to make robotic snailfish, I think, which are these fish, the deepest dwelling fish. They live down in these trenches, including the Mariana Trench. There's the Mariana snailfish, which pretty much pushes up to the, against this kind of the theoretical limit of how deep a fish can go, about 8,000 metres. And they've got these sort of weird, squishy bodies. And, I, and the way they swim is, is very efficient as well. So, because I think, as, again, what we want to do is kind of develop 
very low energy, very efficient ways of putting devices in the ocean so that they, you know, battery power and so on means they can go for a long time. So that, yeah, I think that could work. And who knows what else, you know, yeah, exactly. The sort of the inspirations from life in the deep to help us actually study that life. There's something very wonderfully circular about that, isn't there? Do you think there's actually a, a limit of human exploration of the abyss. With space, there's always the question of how far can we go? But with the sea, I mean, how deep do you think we could get? Oh, we've got to the bottom already. That's happened. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, job done. All right, over. (laughs) We've got to the deepest bits. Um, We can go anywhere. We can go anywhere. I guess the question is, will we go everywhere? Mm. And how long until that happens? You know, it's one of those things that um, it's hard to actually know what's the truth about the percentage of the ocean, the deep ocean that we've explored. And you hear people say things like, oh, only 10% of the ocean's explored or whatever it might be, 5%, 10%, 20%. And I guess it depends partly on what kind of resolution you're talking about. We've we've got a a map of the entire seafloor, but it's pretty crude compared to the maps we've got things like the the moon, for example. So, you know, I don't know if we really do know for sure the sort of how much of the ocean has been explored. It's obviously small compared to the entire volume. But will we ever see all of it? Well, I mean, I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, you're certainly going to have to start spending an awful lot more money on deep sea research if we're going to get anywhere close to getting an eyeball on even half of what's down there. So we've got an awful long way to go still, which in my mind is is fine. I like the idea of still having more to discover. I think uh, that's good. Well, despite all the stuff that we're discovering, do you think that because of the historical ways we've traditionally understood the sea, these tautologies have emerged and do you think they still impact the way we think about the sea? I mean, I still thought that the sea was only 550 metres deep at its deepest point. (laughs) So I don't know. I think I think we are changing our views of the planet through mm. our understanding of the deep ocean. I mean, obviously, we. I think humanity is going to always we're always going to be rooted to to the earth, to to the, to the land. We are air breathing land mammals, after all. And no matter how much we kid yeah. ourselves, we need an enormous amount of life support if we're going to ever go beyond that surface skin of the ocean. So we're only ever going to be visitors down into this enormous space. So I think it is maybe that's the hard part with being a an earth dweller is the more we understand about how connected everything is from the very deepest parts of the ocean to to the atmosphere, to land. Um, it, it is all connected, but seeing those connections is a challenge and understanding that what we do at the very deepest parts of the ocean will have an impact on what happens out here on land and for the lives that we and every other living thing on this planet leads. I think that is the challenge. And I don't know when or how we can push that and change that view. No matter, you know, we can come up with the facts and tell people that we're finding these better understandings of how how all these um, systems are connected through flows of, of, of heat and carbon and oxygen and, and nutrients and everything else. Will we really take that to heart and feel that we are just these kind of global citizens all in this big melting mm. pot, all in this together? I don't know. I don't know what, what that will take for for everyone or for lots of people to really feel part of the deep ocean instead of, as we do, kind of mostly see it as being this alien space separated from us out on land. I don't know what it will take apart from just lots more discoveries and talking about it and sharing and thinking about what's down there. We, we, we might not think of ourselves in a melting pot, but we are certainly on a melting earth. And you've made the sea sound so wild and, and wonderful. But the problem with human beings is they always find a way to exploit these things. And what do you think are the deepest and greatest threats to the sea right now? So, I mean, overall, we have got some really big issues to think about when it comes to the ocean Mm. and climate change is, I think, the longest term threat that we are going to have to figure out for all of life on Earth, all the way to the bottom of the deepest oceans. This is going to be the big thing we've got to figure out. But the oceans obviously, almost uniquely as well, I think, at the moment on the planet suffer from the exploitation of wild resources, fishing, we, 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 we reap vast quantities of living creatures from the ocean in ways that we really don't do on land. You know, it's mostly domesticated mm. consumption that we 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 carry out on land. And that has its own impact as well. And that that's all part of the picture. But in terms of wild harvesting, the oceans really do take the brunt of this level of exploitation. And uh, and then there are new threats. I mean we've got 
pollution in the oceans too, and there is a sort of an amplification of pollution because it kind of all ends up in the in the ocean. It all ends up in the deep plastics, uh, chemical mm. pollution. You know, it's sort of where most things, where most chemicals of ultimately kind of pool is is in the oceans. So again, that's sort of a somewhat certainly a shared fate with land um, ecosystems and land life on land, but possibly, you know, quite a bit worse in the oceans because it kind of ends up down there. And then I would also say, yeah, I mean, I think the history of exploring the oceans specifically, especially the deeper parts of the oceans, has always gone hand in hand with this idea of exploitation. And fishing is one side of that, but there's new threats on the horizon too, which is deep sea mining. It hasn't happened yet, but it's getting very close and there's a lot of talk about it at the moment. And right now there's some some explorations going on in the Pacific to look into this even more. And we could see some mines open in the next few years. And, and the idea of this is that there are not only great biological riches in the deep sea, but there are great mineral riches. And this is true. I mean, there are there are great resources of metals across the abyssal plains. There are metals within black smokers of hydrothermal vents and on the top of possibly millions of underwater volcanoes and mountains, we have seamounts scattered all through the deep ocean, certainly hundreds of thousands of them, possibly millions, depending on just how big they are or how big you think they need to be. And they're also covered in, in metal-rich rocks and there are companies that are, are pretty keen to get their hands on those. And again, it comes back a bit to this sort of circular idea of, of what's going on on this planet, because the, some of the arguments being made for mining these things uh, is to find metals to make the kinds of devices we need to get ourselves out of the climate change crisis. Yeah. Seems ironic. It is. I mean, it is, but it's also too... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a simplistic argument, unfortunately, that's being made because it's based on the premise that uh, we're going to get ourselves out of, out of this trouble and convert our economies to wonderful low carbon, zero carbon green economies using the kinds of technologies that are currently available, including things like electric car batteries, which are based on technologies that were developed first to make handheld camcorders back in the 80s. Mm. And it isn't really necessarily asking the question of how could those technologies change and adapt and become more efficient and better. And um, same thing with solar panels, same things with wind turbines. They do need a large amount of metals. We are. There's no doubt that if we go down those roads, we're going to give up fossil fuels and, and adopt a big metal habit. We're going to need a lot of metals. But the question is, which metals, where do they come from? And I think some of the arguments towards the need for mining, things like cobalt from the deep ocean and nickel, are overly simplified uh, between a sort of, well, you've got to choose between greening the economies or, or you know, looking after the deep ocean. And frankly, you know, the green stuff wins. Uh, it's That's too simplistic. Um, there's a lot of other factors in play. There's no doubt we're going to need to change the way we produce energy, the way we move ourselves around the planet. But equally, I strongly believe in the uh, ability of humans to come up with incredible new solutions to the problems that we face and give the right money and the right resources to those smart people who can figure things out. And I don't think we do need to limit ourselves in terms of the sorts of technologies that will get us out of the big problem of climate change. And I certainly don't think the solution lies in the deep ocean. We we better hope that a metal-rich asteroid just comes close <laughs> enough before we start uh, mining well, the Well, another option. Well, yeah, it's, it's one or the other by the, by the sound of it. I mean, I hadn't realised until I investigated your work, I hadn't realised just how politically fraught this idea of deep sea mining is. As you said, yes, we haven't done it yet, but there's massive commercial and state ties that make it a very appealing thing to do and, and were done in the name of actually protecting the sea. It seems almost slightly corrupt. Yeah. Interesting you, you would say that. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's a question really, I think. Well, a big part of the question is, is it really a better option or are we just mm. causing yet more troubles that we don't really understand on this planet? And I think it, it also comes back to this idea of the deep ocean being so out of sight and out of mind that it's very easy to say, oh, well, there's not much down yeah. there. And the impacts of this are, are, are going to be far less than comparative comparing it to mining on land. And there's no doubt that, yeah, land-based mining is is dreadful. And there are all sorts of environmental and human costs to that. And those absolutely need to be addressed and they need to be cleaned up and we need to need to do that better. But I don't see that pushing into a whole new frontier on this planet, which is the deep ocean, is going to solve that problem. Certainly not. The both is going to continue alongside. And the point is that scientists do not know yet what the full impacts of deep sea mining will be, um, which is why there have been increasing calls from not only conservation um, sort of environmental NGOs, but also governments and, and other 
public groups are basically saying we need to pause and we need to understand those impacts better before pushing into that new frontier. Because it, it is, it's, it's continuing the story of humanity's age-old ambition to use up the resources that they've got on planet Earth and then look for the next one and push into new frontiers. And the deep ocean really is the final frontier we have. It really is the last vast space that we have not yet fully occupied as humanity. And sure, we could we could just repeat the same old story, do the same old thing, push into that resource, exploit it and use it and take it, and then that's done. Or, or we could say, well, how about we do it differently this time. Maybe we could mm. maybe we could learn from past mistakes and say, hmm, you know, we have an opportunity to stop and not rush into this and say, let's really understand the full picture of what this would cause to life on Earth, to the health of the ocean, to the health of the planet, before deciding that this is the better option to take, simply because there are some companies who think it's exciting and they do, and they're making it look very exciting there producing images of what these mining machines might look like and oh yeah. don't they look futuristic and wonderful and and not at all like big dirty mining machines that we see on land and it's all very well and good until we really understand the full impacts of of what this could have and because it's going to be so out of sight that's going to be difficult so it's it's a tricky situation we're in and i think it's mm. going to unfold and get even more heated in the coming time as we learn more about what exactly those companies have in mind, what they're setting up, what their ambitions are and and what the scientists are saying. And I, my hope is that the scientists will get to say their piece and will get to take the time they need to really get to grips with this question of where do we get our resources from for, for these machines and everything else we need to build before big decisions are made to say, yeah, it's fine, go ahead, do the mining. It would just show that we have moved on and we have evolved as a species. If we could say, maybe maybe there's a different way to do this and we could give that a try before we just repeat the same old story of, of exploiting before we fully understand what, what the consequences are. The problem is that while we debate the ethics of deep sea mining, we, we still have a major problem today and that's one of plastics. Surely plastics are changing the chemical makeup of the ocean. We see so much press and attention put towards the impact of plastic waste in the sea. Is that a solvable problem? Is that something that humans are going to have to technologically solve? Or are we already seeing creatures starting to evolve with the ability to deal with processing plastics? So, I mean, it's certainly a problem we need to solve in terms of the input of more plastics. I think that's certainly, mm. um, and it shouldn't be rocket science. It shouldn't be out of reach, really. <laughs> in terms of the sorts of products that are produced. And, you know, again, I think we, I'm surely we can find material scientists who've got solutions to creating different types of packaging and so on. The really insidious types of plastics that we're throwing away can come to an end and we can find alternatives. So we can cut off that supply of new plastics. You know, that I think that can be done with the will and with the money and the incentives to, to make that change. I think we can do that technologically. That's not too difficult. I shouldn't, I, re I really don't think it should be. Obviously, there's an awful lot of plastic already in the oceans. And I think the big question mark that has yet to be answered is just how much impact that plastic is having on ecosystems. Mm. Obviously, it's not great. And we are seeing impacts from the level of, of organisms of whole animals down to cells and even into our um, sort of genetic level impacts and sort of uh, interfering with cellular function. And, and that is worrying. And I think we, we do need to understand more about the impact, especially of very tiny bits of plastic, microplastics and small, these very small particles that are getting inside of living organisms. And that, that is a worry. How much life could adapt to that? Well, I mean, we are certainly seeing some microbes that are able to even use plastic as a substrate for energy production. I don't know if there's a solution of like, well, we could, you know, engineer creatures that we could then set free and then go and munch their way through the plastics in the oceans. It's, it's possible. I think before we do that, we'd really have to understand what the impacts would yeah. be. It could end up being another one of these awful, you know, unleashing a bigger problem than we had in the first place sort of thing. But, uh, you know, there could be solutions out there. And again, I think maybe some really smart thinking could be put into, into that. But, you know, to be honest, I think there's not much chance that we're going to be able to go around and clean up the bottom of the sea of the plastics it already has there. I, there's just too much. And I don't think that's 
necessarily going to be where we should be focusing our efforts. I think we almost just have to accept that. I think the focus really needs to be on not making any more plastic and stopping the problem from that end of things. And if we can come up with a really good solution for cleaning up the oceans, maybe. But at the moment, I don't see how we yet have that, that technologies. But but maybe someone will come up with a great way of doing it and, and we'll be able to do that. But I think it's turning off the tap of plastics into the sea is what must happen as soon as possible. Mm, I've always been interested, especially on this podcast and the more folks we interview, the, the, the relationship between thinking about space and thinking about the deep oceans. And it's almost as if the more excitement and attention space gets, the less attention we put on the seas and the oceans. And is that partly because humans can live in space, whereas we can't necessarily live underwater? And <laughs> do you think whatever result to that? I mean, there's been science fiction narratives whereby the future of humanity lives in these pods under the sea. D- d- does that in any way, shape or form appeal to you, Helen? Living in the ocean? I'd certainly, I'd certainly go there on my holidays. <laughs> no, I would, I mean... Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't, I'd, I'd go there, definitely. I'd love to go and see what it would be like to spend more time in the ocean. I think I probably would, as much as I'm a, a sea person, I'd still miss, miss breathing air and being out, you know, feeling the sun on my, on my skin. But uh, I mean, we could occupy the oceans just as much as we could space. And there are, there are more plans afoot to do that. Um, one of Jacques Cousteau's offspring, I think his grandson, Fabian, at the moment is planning a whole set of of deep ocean, sort of the equivalent of the International Space Station, really, a sort of a set of, of mm. research bases, undersea research bases. And there certainly are some benefits to putting humans down there in terms of the science that we can do. Having said that, of course, there's depths of the ocean. I don't think we're going to get to on long periods. We're only just going to have kind of brief visits to the very deepest parts of the ocean rather than setting up um, home there. But I think there are so many parallels in terms of how a human can exist in these places where we're just not supposed to be, whether it's out of space or into the ocean. You know, it's a similar case of really just stepping out beyond our our envelope of, of, of what we should really, the place we should really occupy. And therefore, you know, we are a visitor to both of those places. And you know, why, why do that? Well, I suppose it's that human connection, isn't it? I guess that's the strong the strong part of it, the excitement, as you say, about putting people in space. And, you know, <laughs> I know a couple of astronauts and uh, friends of mine who've gone on and, you know, actually gone on space programs. And it's just, it does blow my mind to think that they could at some point, they should at some point, you know, get off the planet. You know, that's just, it is crazy. And it's, it's, we can't get away from just how exciting and different that is. And I, I do wish that we could have the same response to people who go into the deep ocean as well, because it is just as an extraordinary feat of technology Mm. and of ambition to do that. And there's so much more to see when you go there as well. There's all that life, for example. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think, I don't know, do do I think there should be a kind of a colonies at the bottom of the sea? I mean, maybe, perhaps it would help change that view of it's being a really important part of our our world if there were lots of people down there. I don't like the idea that we're going to have to go down there because we've ruined everything out on land. That would be a shame if all we had left was <laughs> an option of just sort of hiding ourselves in the deep ocean. But, uh, you know, I guess that cut this, the idea of where humans are and what we can do does really influence our our outlook and our connections to places. And, you know, I, I don't like to think of space science and deep sea science as being kind of in opposition to each other and that they've got mm. so much to teach each other. And, you know, astronauts train in the deep ocean. We study the oceans from space. You know, it goes both ways. I, I'm fascinated to learn um, what sort of research will be done in undersea research laboratories. It does sound very Bond villain-esque <laughs> and reminds me almost of uh, of seasteading because the great thing about having a lab in the middle of the ocean is it's outside of nation states. So uh, I'm sure there'll yeah. be all sorts of weird and wonderful research that could potentially be done outside of the Geneva Convention <laughs> there. But but looking, <laughs> oh God, but looking back more positively at, at, at what you've been able to do, Helen, which is to give us more deep sea awareness. And for any folks who've listened to this podcast and been inspired by what you've said and what you've shared, how can they learn more about our deep oceans? Well, I think we're in, again, not only this golden era of research and discovering the deep ocean, but also communicating what's down there. We've got some amazing tools at our fingertips to show 
everybody. I mean, one of the things I have got a huge soft spot for and many a sleepless night has been spent watching these real-time broadcasts of deep-sea research expeditions. So mm-hmm. not many have been happening during the pandemic, but they are coming back online now. But there is various organisations that basically transmit what they're doing live on the internet on YouTube and you can just plug in and watch what science is happening miles down beneath the waves on the other side of the planet. I remember very clearly one morning, uh, it was late in the morning actually, late at night I should say, kind of tuning into one of these things and just been completely transported to this this, uh, sea mount in the Pacific and I was watching an octopus going about its day, going hunting for food. And and there I was with a couple of hundred other people logged into this website with the scientists telling us what we were seeing. And it's just mesmerising. You know, it's this incredible, it's the real time part of it as well that really gets me, like the idea that, okay, with a few seconds delay, that octopus is doing those things right now and we're watching, we're in its world, you know, and all that stuff's archived. So there's incredible footage online now from all of these wonderful expeditions. And there's a list, I've got a list at the end of my book, The Brilliant Abyss, of all these places you can go. There's things like the Schmidt Institute, there's Okeanos. Have a look online, just look for kind of deep sea research and you'll find amazing resources that will take you into the world of these scientists that are doing all this research. You know, watch TV shows, um, read books, learn about it. I think, you know, tell your friends. I think what I would love is for for more people to embrace the deep and how fascinating it is just by yeah learning and listening and looking and and so you know next time you hear a news headline about something like deep sea mining or deep sea fishing or or a new species that's been discovered you know you've got that connection and that sort of base understanding that um this isn't just a weird alien space it is our planet it's such an important part of our planet and you know and, and knowing about it helps to make those connections too between between us and that space and you know i think there has never been a better time to to know about the deep ocean because yeah the science is there the communications are there their stories are out there to find whether that's yeah on the pages of a book on the tv screen or on youtube it's all out there well, there we go. Forget Big Brother, Big Bubble <laughs> is the next big trend in reality TV. Helen, you've, you've done such a wonderful job at, at taking the deep sea out of sight, out of mind and bringing it to the forefront of our consciousness. And for that, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to talk about the deep and uh, for sharing all these wonders. And uh, thank you so much. It's been fab. Thank you to Helen for showing us why it is vitally important to protect and conserve our oceans. You can find out more by purchasing her new book, The Brilliant Abyss, True Tales of Exploring the Deep Sea, Discovering Hidden Life and Selling the Seabed, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.